0: Hello and welcome to For Your Ears Only, the audio series that takes a deep dive into all things podcasting. I'm Lance Dan.
1: And I'm Martin Spinelli. Lance, did I ever tell you about the time Ira Glass called me up to talk to me about working with him on
0: This American Life? Uh, on about a weekly basis. I know, I know. Humor me, though. Humor Mm. me. Go on, tell me the story. What happened when Ira Glass called you on? So,
1: I was working in New York. I'd just started working in New York, and I'd applied months ago for a job at This American Life, and Ira Glass called me up. Really? On the phone, in his voice? In his own voice. What did he say? Well, I'm not going to tell you just yet. What? So, did he offer you the job?
0: I'm not going to say. You're going to have to wait for it. I can't imagine what happens seeing as you're sat here now not in the This American Life studios. It's going okay, okay. to be a twist, isn't it? Just humor me. Uh, Just humour me. actually This American Life and not for your ears only? This is our hook for the show. And uh, you've done a narrative thing to me. I have. That's what you've done. You've kept me waiting so I can find the end of the story. I have done. And this also sets up today's show, which is about podcast narrative. This idea of narrative seems to be really deeply wedded to a certain type of podcasting. and It's difficult to think about podcasting without structure and story within it.
1: yeah, can you can you imagine podcasts today without story?
0: Well, there's a lot of podcasts that don't, but, my first, the first time I started noticing podcasting as a thing, as a, something distinct from radio and other kinds of audio, was around the stories. There was these things I'd listen to, and then I'd rush upstairs and tell my wife, oh, do you, have you heard about, you be some kind of Radio Lab story, that I would then think, okay, I wasn't doing this around the BBC. I wasn't rushing upstairs saying, I've been listening to Lord Melvin Bragg. He did a fascinating thing about the Byzantine Empire. <laughs> and that was making me think, okay, there's something different happening here.
1: Yeah, yeah. And- and even on the more chat-casty type podcasts that are popular, like My Dad wrote a porno, for example, there's a kind of a story architecture. It's it's at least about an erotic novel that has a plot in some in some big way. So story seems to be woven into a lot of these high-profile podcasts that we've been researching over the past couple of years.
0: It's a very effective way of engaging audiences and drawing them in.
1: Yes, but it kind of sounds a bit sterile when you say it like that. Podcast narrative is also really, really beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And in the hands of some producers, it it even becomes transcendent and metaphysical. Those are words that they use to talk about it.
0: In some ways, narrative is so common and so widely spread. It's not unique to podcasting, is it?
1: No, no. I think it's probably the least specific characteristic about podcasting that we talk about. Lots of radio, lots of other media, obviously, are deeply indebted to story structures. But there is quite a particular shape in podcast narrative. First of all, it tends to be really conversational. And in something like Radiolab, you record dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations uh, and you strip mine them for a tiny little nugget or two and it requires a tremendous amount of production
0: work. And prior to that, I think it's also the amount of work that goes into finding the stories. I think in uh, the Jessica Abel book, she quotes uh, This American Life as saying they take one in 20 stories that they research to find that perfect story that hits all the right beats along the way. Um, and when I, you know, last time I recorded a documentary with the BBC and my producer said, because um, I was thinking, I was saying, well, which one of these do we use and which of these interviews don't we use? And she was like, well, we're going to use them all, Lance. Partly because of the cost involved and partly out of an English sense of politeness that if we have interviewed these people, we weren't going to then suddenly ditch them because their story wasn't good enough. It takes a lot of effort to get those perfect stories.
1: And another thing, more often than on radio, podcast narrative also tends to be more self-conscious about story, more reflective about story. These are stories about stories, at least in the really big name podcasts that we're going to look at later in the show. One of the things that we've noticed in our research over the past few years into podcasting is that there are different podcasting cultures. And one of the things that marks the American way of thinking about podcasting is a real necessity of story. It's it's really It seems to be really, really important in America. And it comes out of the groundbreaking success of This American Life that became the most popular thing on American radio and have been running for more than 20 years.
0: And that was about when... I record you, wasn't it? Yes, yes.
1: We'll get to that, I promise. And... Ann Hepperman, the co-producer of the show Serendipity and one of the founders of the Sarah Awards for Audio Fiction, has been carefully listening to podcasts at least as long as we have. And when I spoke to her, she also mentioned This American Life as the first step in the evolution of podcasting.
2: I think, you know, what Ira Glass did with This American Life was kind of take the notions from fiction character plot and said, these are the ideas that really helped to make and craft for like a good story that people want to be listening to. And then Jad came along like, oh, I want to experiment more with sound. Those two sounds, I think, helped to shape the younger generations of listeners who've now come up in terms of really focusing on the idea of story, sometimes which I think is to people's detriment. I just think that story is important. We've figured out, you know, that that is a successful model for getting, like, audiences, you know, and has been since, you know, the Odyssey. But I think once we start to say that news and information should be put through that, once storytelling and character comes into play, it can be really dangerous because if you don't have ethics in the back of your mind you're going to do things that you may not realize are unethical life isn't life life isn't a story life is messy and sometimes life is boring but still the information is is uh is key
0: uh martin can i have a quiet word you know what goes on this podcast just you know stays on this stays. Okay. Listeners, on podcast. Listeners, you have to
1: take your earbuds out.
0: I yeah, uh, I don't. I don't listen to this American Life. So technically, <sighs> I've never listened to an episode that of this is American Life. Utterly scandalous. There's, there's so much other st- stuff to listen to, and I don't have time to listen back.
3: Oh,
1: that's that's you should be ashamed of yourself. So
0: how does narrative work within this American Life? Okay,
1: there's some really obvious narrative markers that you can hear. They talk about character a lot. Um, the programs are organized around a structure which is very, very clearly labeled. And it's become, through its popularity, this kind of touchstone for what audio is meant to be. And it's assumed this is the template if you want to be professional. Huh. (laughs) That was a good huh. I did my podcast huh. (laughs) Your podcast huh. What does the podcast huh signify, Lance? It
0: signifies that I've been paying attention... I know what you just said some words to me, and I understood the words, but I have no further words to add to yours. (laughs) So, yeah, it's just a way of saying I'm still in the room. Okay, good. I'm glad you're
1: here. Um, Another thing that comes out of this American life in terms of story and narrative is this idea of self-reflexivity. These are, in some sense, stories about stories. But
0: not everyone likes story. And one of the things, actually, I had as a producer when I got mildly story-obsessed, and I was working on shows and podcasts, I was like, oh, God, it's got to have a story. It's got to have a story. What have we all learned from this experience? And all <laughs> my other kind of English co-producers and presenters were just like, why does it have to have a story every time, Lance? Can't it just be some people telling you some things? So there is that discomfort, and I don't know whether it's just an English thing. Lance, so why do you think story is a, a bigger deal in the U.S.? You look like talking, don't you? you? You all have psychologists and things to help you with your problems, whereas uh, like all good English people, I bottle up all my problems, hold them inside and then explode in violence. So <laughs> actually not in violence, that's American though. But I do think maybe you're more used to telling stories about your lives to each other. So maybe it's that? Could be. Cultures are different. I think it might also have something
1: to do with the familiarity of the BBC and the BBC that uh, we've grown up with over here, which is not particularly story. When we think of speech audio in the U.S., we're thinking of this American life, whereas when you
0: think of speech radio in Britain, you think of Melvin Bragg and a hundred other things. I wonder whether it's down to how programmes are commissioned and come to be. With the BBC, you go through a commissioning process where you pitch in. Very rarely do you actually have your story at the pitch point. And as someone who writes pitches, between you and me, I actually invent potential stories about potential characters we might meet in our research, because the research hasn't taken place. Mm -hmm. Whereas I wonder whether the research has... People are given salaries to go and find stories. Because, you know, because of going back to what I said earlier, the wastage, the one in 20 yeah. So there might actually be a production culture... Bias towards story, yeah, absolutely. ...that allows it to breathe, because the BBC certainly wants story and everything. It's like, that's costy, and that involves, you know, luck and a lot of great research.
1: A lot of the narrative podcast producers that we interviewed and a whole bunch that we didn't interview refer to their narrative work in some quite theoretical terms. Ira Glass, for example, he studied semiotics at university, and he takes a lot of cues from
0: Roland Barthes, the French semiotician. And at this juncture, I have to also point out that not only have I not listened to This American Life, but I haven't read Roland Barthes, so I don't know whether I'm qualified to do this podcast. Can you just, (laughs) but before you notice that, uh, because I don't know about theory or podcasting by the looks of it, can you just unpack Barthes? for me then. Okay, well I'm definitely not going to do a lecture on Barth, but Glass points to
1: Roland Barthes' book SZ or SZ if you're American um, and in that book Barth talks about a lot of codes for building narrative and one of the ones he talks about is the Enigma code, the kind of puzzle that a reader or a listener wants to solve. Ah, withholding information like you did earlier. Yes um, and another one he talks about is the cultural code. When you wrestle with a big idea that's slightly beyond the subject matter that you're talking about.
0: Okay, yeah, I've seen that. Everything's got to have a purpose. What does this story tell us about life? Exactly. In it can't just be the story is not enough on its own. It has to tell us something about the universe and the state of the world where we're in. Yes, As far as uh, writers about narrative are concerned, my relationship is closer to Robert McKee, who's the big Hollywood film script guru. And he writes about the assembling story in terms of beats and moments and how to make it sort of like a piece of music that flows through compositionally and makes sense like that.
1: You're not alone in that, Lance. A lot of other podcasters also refer to McKee, um, particularly in the Radiotopia stable people like Caitlin Prest and Brendan Baker and even Jonathan Mitchell. So, I don't know, maybe Roman Mars sends out a reading list with assignments every week. Yeah, that makes
0: me worry about what's on the Gimlet reading list as opposed to the Radiotopia reading list. I think Radiotopia (laughs) reading list would be quite good, but the Gimlet one would be kind of... Hobbes and Keys and... Management theory, wouldn't it? (laughs) Total quality management.
1: Here's the hearts presenter Caitlin Prest talking with me about the pleasure and the frustration of chasing narrative.
3: The way that I really feel is that narrative to me is like a math equation that I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out, you know. And that it, there's something so like satisfying about about unlocking. Narrative. The first reason why it's satisfying to me is because it is, el- it's elusive to me. Like I don't really understand, you know, have you ever read that book, The Storybook by on Robert McKee, McKee? Yeah.
1: Inciting incident.
3: Right. Like, the formula. Yeah. But I, but that's the thing is like that formula, like I, I, it is, it's, it's, it's limitlessly satisfying. I saw um, Albert Mazel's talk and I remember him saying like, why does everything have to focus on a conflict? And I was, like, so deeply moved when he said that. I was like, yeah, why? Like, why can't we just, (sighs) you know?
1: I want to push you on this, on why you find it so sad. Okay, okay.
3: (sighs) I mean, it sounds so simple, it sounds so stupid, but it's like, you know, things are one way at the beginning, and they're different at the end that feels good, that's fascinating. It's like, to me, there's nothing more limitlessly fascinating than a before and after picture.
1: There's also this kind of dissatisfaction when you go into a film and 15 minutes in, you know how it's gonna end.
3: Of course. And that's not satisfying. But that's bad writing. To me, I think that the most interesting thing about Narrative Well Done is it's a series of questions It's a series of questions you know and some of the questions get answered and some of them don't and I think that with narrative like you take that sort of like questioning space and that like kind of engagement and you you place it in time um, with a character and and with events and I mean it was Robert McKee who said of course I have to relate it to love stories but he said um, a love story is only as interesting as what stands in the way of the lovers' love, yeah, goes back to
1: conflict again, which, like,
3: oh, yeah. I know, but the thing is that, it, but, but I like, okay, if we step away from conflict and and go in the direction of questioning, yeah, I think that's the interesting part. Yeah. You can think about a story as a photograph, you know, a photograph captures a fleeting second of a structure that happened once and never again, and a story is the exact same way, I think.
1: Huh. (laughs) There was that, that huh again. I shall take that to mean you've understood. I've understood and noted what Caitlin Press said. A lot of other narrative podcasters have uh, absorbed Zvetan Todorov. I love saying that name, Zvetan Todorov. Um, he's got a very elegantly simple model of narrative, and his benchmark story model is the quest. And Lance, if you think of serial, does that does that not sound yeah. like a quest
0: to you? I, that's all. That. I mean, like a lot of the true crime stuff. I'm listening to Ice Valley at the moment, Death in Ice Valley. And as a producer, I'm aware this is a complete fiction. They know it's going to. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it if they didn't imagine if the quest went oh we've got no further data about this long dead woman oops sorry one episode only of course they know what's coming later on but their journey is a fiction and it makes it much more enjoyable and you can even twist it at the end like on serial you don't have the payoff that you expect
1: you expect sarah koning to say well adnan did it adnan didn't do it but in the end really it's a story about how sarah changed even though people were a little bit you want more than that. You, want, you want a
0: body well, or a uh, smoking gun. A lot of people wanted that at the end of cereal, didn't they? <laughs> it didn't have that punctuation at the end that, boom, there it is. It's over. We've sorted this. Mm, and true. a lot of people were thrown by it. So what's the appeals story? Then why, why do you think it's so prevalent in this form? Why can it be like in our time of just old people telling us things and we pay attention?
1: Well, when I spoke with Ellen Horn and Jad Abumrad, both who became very well known for their work on Radiolab, they told me how narrative evolved on Radiolab, and they they had their own roundabout answers to this question: Why story? So here's Ellen Horn.
4: We were really interested in trying to tell stories that used sound better, and we were interested to have stories that used conversation better. We didn't want to make something that had to be a weekly show. We wanted to make something that could have more impact. I always want a podcast to have character, plot, ideas. I want it to be something that has impact where like I'm intellectually and emotionally moved. There are very few things that hit me on all of those levels. I mean almost without almost without exception reply all gets it for me and um, and I love I love what they've done with that podcast I mean Radio lab always gets that this American life for 20 years has always gotten that um, and that's a, like a it's a battle to, to make it work on all of those levels there are there are a few things that always that can do that
1: Have, do you think that um, we've reached a point now in the wake of this American life and where so story with a capital S is becoming a little bit monolithic? This idea that everything has to be hammered into a narrative structure, even if it doesn't really fit?
4: I don't know. Yeah, that's, a good, that's a good thesis. Um,
1: You're still very attached to story. I am I very
4: attached to story because I, I think that's how our minds work. I think that's how we make sense of information. It's not the way the world works, though. I mean... No, but that's how, that's how meaning works. It's how you construct meaning. So she's
1: talking about constructing meaning out of chaos. This is really, really powerful stuff. And it has roots in a lot of ancient cultures, like the Bible, for example. The creation story in the Bible, in most translations, begins, in the beginning, there was the word, right? And this resonates really immaculately with Jad Abumrad in Out on the Wire saying, it's the beginning that you create. So we're providing structures to organize this randomness, to generate meaning. Here's Jad reflecting on Radiolab's relationship with both science and story.
5: We grew up as a science show, I guess. I mean, I guess if I, if I wanted to sort of reduce it to that. But really what this show was and Increasingly, is is a look at complicated things, you know, and just look at some complexity in the world, and we want to tell stories about it. For me, the balance is between taking some some sort of vaporously complicated thing and infusing it into the form of a story. There have to be they have to be in a kind of balanced tension, um, because the world is complicated and it doesn't actually exist in story shapes. So there is something artificial about the beginning, middle, and ends that we place on things. But in some way, if you don't create that artificial boundaries, you can't hold the ideas. So, like the stories are sort of holding spaces. I think, think of, for the things that are really interesting, you can't really talk about them unless you have somebody doing something. You know, so you have to have a character who's your vehicle, and that becomes a kind of the thing that can hold the ideas that you really want to talk about. One of the things we you hear us do a lot in Radio Lab is acknowledge the like a- illusion of it. I don't know how many episodes we start where we're like, okay, well, let me, let me just start the story over here, you know, and then we start. There is not a beginning. It's, it's a beginning that you create. And I feel like we're always acknowledging to our audience that, like, this is just total bullshit, but it's like a bullshit we all want and we all need.
1: I asked Jad if he thought that as human beings we were simply hardwired for narrative, that we need narrative.
5: I know personally it doesn't stick in my head unless unless it comes in a story shape. And it, unless it's once upon a time, yeah, it just do, doesn't get in my brain, you know? Um, and I read a ton of fact-based journalism where it's not story-shaped, it's just sort of lists of facts. And I can't remember them, you know? They don't somehow, it's not, that shape doesn't get into my brain. But there's sort of inherent suspense in the story form which keeps you listening. And then it's also sort of engineered to have those moments where you can sort of learn and find meaning. I also think it's also about, you know, like beginning, middle and end, it's like uh, somehow parallels past, present, future. The promise of the story, even though it's never stated this way, is that it allows you to figure out who you are now based on who you were and who you might be. Like there's something in the story shaped that somehow I feel like does that. but I actually, I do think the world doesn't exist in stories. I think the world exists as a big splatter of shit in a big network of stuff. And we create stories out of that. So there is some sort of, I think, a uh, fundamental distortion that we do when we tell stories. But I think it's a necessary one. I do feel hemmed in sometimes. It, it, the way that stories are relentlessly linear and then each moment has to sort of pull you into the next moment. Like, I would love to have moments where there's like seven minutes of just, who the fuck knows what's going on because that's what that's what you're in when you're listening to a piece of music i feel like our stories have to be relentlessly engaging like every moment has to pull you forward and i get
0: frustrated with that you know he's saying that he thinks that story is bullshit that he's conflicted about it and is taking a kind of empiricist position on the subject yeah
1: yeah well he kind of vacillates in and out of that empiricist position and I feel his pain. I'm conflicted, too. It's really hard to write refable, peer-reviewed articles about this in academic journals. But, you know, Jad doesn't live in that space that I live in.
0: Yeah, and I wouldn't have been running upstairs to tell the stories to my wife. That's what made it communicable. And that's what um, science journalism in general hasn't done too well until Radiolab came came, came along and took over the, the space. Which is kind of odd, because in a way... Story makes the ideas more powerful, doesn't it? It's, it's I mean, are they more dangerous without story, information facts, or is it story that weaponizes them? <laughs>
1: well, that, I think that's an open question. And I think Jad, in typical Jad fashion, would try to hold both positions. But the important thing for me is that he constantly returns back to this idea of humanity and being human. Uh, his podcasts are relentlessly human. they are people and people's stories over-randomness and absurd or arbitrary structures. There's a real humanist current in Radiolab.
0: For me, as someone who is a scriptwriter, narrative is very much about structure. That's how I see it, and that's why I know McKee. I don't worship at his feet but I understand the idea of story coming out of the building blocks, these elements you slot together. This is something that Dana Chivas talks about, how important structure is to her work on serial.
6: I, I assume everybody does this, but I think it's it's probably just because this is how we all, we all have been taught to do it, having all worked here at This American Life. Pacing is super important, and you have to have moments of reflection. Plot, you have to have Uh, forward momentum so that there's something carrying you through the episode and um, so much of this is done in the writing which is something I think a lot of people who don't work in radio don't necessarily realize because if writing is done well it sounds just like someone's talking to you right so yeah again like that's why edits are are so super important and we'll spend you know a, a very long time talking about one word or or one line in her script for that reason do you
1: ever kind of um want to try to push the envelope a little bit you know is there a way of kind of making audio information engaging that's not built on this narrative model that we're talking about
6: i'm sure there is um we're not like actively like we don't have a checklist as we go through and we're not going through and saying oh it's been five minutes we need a moment of reflection that's oh, been 12 minutes somebody needs to make a joke here and so i don't you know it's not that we're thinking about it in in those terms it's more almost of just like a feeling you mm. know when you're listening to the story especially in the edit like just like what am i feeling am i feeling bored here am i feeling confused you know am i feeling like that was all important information but i don't know what to make of it and a lot of our editorial comments come down to that. I think if you if you sort of reduce the elements of an episode, you can sort of reduce them to, like, there were four moments of reflection in this one or, or whatever. But, like, we're not thinking of it that way. We're just sort of responding to it as listeners ourselves. Mm.
0: And let's take Serial as our little model of how to discuss structure, because it's a very good one for pulling it apart and talking about all the different elements that build story. For example, there is always a
1: bait or a hook or a sexy, intriguing anecdote at the beginning of each episode. Right. They
0: give you that little moment to draw you in, just like you did at the beginning of our one, where you gave us that really interesting anecdote about Ira Glass. Yes. All right. All right. And also, like, each scene will have its own chronology. There'll be set up, there'll be action, there'll be an, I- an idea, scene by scene by scene.
1: And everything resolves in a conclusion at the end. And it may not be a conclusion that you expect, but it is a conclusion
0: in a way that if we look at serial as being okay, a good example of using structures. There's also an extent to which, you know, these structures can be used for ill. S Town was a bad case of like not just setting up those sexy baits as interesting things to draw people in, but kind of bait and switch, fooling us. Because it was initially set up as um a true crime drama, wasn't it? And then Switch, it's actually about a horologist who dies. And then, oh, we've got some interesting cousins appearing. And then it's, it's it
1: literally becomes a quest for buried treasure at the end because they're looking for
0: John's gold. It then kind of goes into the murky area, really, of like looking at this man's private life. And there were so many Switches in that that that's why, you know, I don't think there's a lot of good feeling around S-Town at, at the moment. But there is one thing to say about it. At least within, it's sort of that point about the importance of character and humanity. They did try and put people constantly into the story, and it was about the people in the town. Yeah,
1: they were really, really central. Perhaps the last building block of narrative, which you hear on lots and lots of narrative podcasts, is a
0: moment of reflection. You know, I do think it's a kind of a very American thing, of pulling back. Whereas yeah. English people don't need feel the urge to do that. Yeah. We're kind of quite happy. Yeah, as, as you, we were. You, you
1: haven't been into self-improvement for hundreds of years. No! So no,
0: definitely not. And Whereas you guys are just improving
1: endlessly, aren't you? So, yeah, these are these are allegorical moments where a character or a presenter or an interviewee is kind of pulling back from the scene that they're in and reflecting about the bigger implications. Radiolab is a particularly good place to find this. You find it all the time. I'm thinking in particular of a moment in the 2005 Radiolab episode called Space. Robert Kralwich is presenting a physicist's point of view.
0: We are a speck
6: on a speck on a speck, on a speck.
3: And the speck that you just heard talking, who is over six feet tall, by the way, is Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist and director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City.
5: See that, that right there, though, is why I think a lot of people don't like science. Um, because pre- any time that anyone normal wants to say that we are important,
3: mm-hmm. they,
5: there's some scientist in the corner who's yelling, "Nah, just know,
3: speck. that's just a science's preference." But I don't, you know, I think uh, artists, Shakespeare, for example, who says, "What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason and all!" It seems like it's art's job to say that we are special, significant. Uh, glorious and it's science's job to say no we're not
5: right well well, maybe art is where we should go next uh stay with us i'm jad abumran and i'm robert quillwich and radio lab will continue in a moment (laughs) so that's a really
1: elegantly simple moment of reflection from a radio lab that's now more than 10 years old
0: and their more recent ones don't kind of do that so much and it's something that I'd notice listening to the show. They'll have these moments. be at the end. It'll be a little pause or a silence at the end where you've identified it as a point where we're meant to insert our own thoughts.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an opportunity for listeners to engage and do that work of reflection that in
0: a lot of earlier episodes was being done by the hosts. And I think actually at the end of um, this for years only, uh, I think we should have a little pause. You think? Yeah, where the audience we'll we'll say something quite profound, and then we'll just leave it for the audience to insert their own opinion, and not to go and do the washing up or something like that. I'm huh. just gonna put the ah, you did you heard <laughs> me? That's good. That's it, Martin. I've got
1: it. I've As an American, it. you I'm should learn huh. self-improvement. To explore the typical narrative structure of lots of podcasting, we've put together our own This American Lifestyle retelling of a classic story that you're probably familiar with.
7: Today's show, Little Red Lies. Our inquiry into how one often innocuous act can cascade into a disaster. We join WILF. A good Samaritan caught in a lie. And as a result, things get ugly. I just run,
8: fast as I can, but I'm slipping and tripping up over roots, twigs, and the nightie is catching around my knees, and crack! A tree next to me
7: explodes. So, how does someone go from a simple good deed to being chased through a forest in a nightie? Well... Our Good Samaritan, living in a rural community in the Pacific Northwest, is used to not fitting in. I
8: moved here around five years ago from the city, but I wouldn't say it's home. In what way? It doesn't have that feel. You gotta remember, I grew up in the city, and this place is tiny in comparison.
7: He's right. It's basically a single road with a few cabins dotted through the forest.
8: It's a culture shock. I tried to keep to myself, but trouble just kind of found me.
7: Wilf had some problems after moving. Small communities can be stuck in their ways. Like when you first move in with someone, it, it can take some adjustment.
8: i paint my letterbox the wrong color or put up too many Christmas lights. They'd act like I'd shot their puppy.
7: I didn't feel welcome at all. But there was one person who welcomed Wilf into the community with open arms.
8: She'd asked me to do odd jobs. She was getting on and she gave me a key. I'd pop in, take her some groceries, stuff like that.
7: And so it went on. Wilf would help his elderly neighbor. One cold November morning began like any other, with the short walk to her house.
8: As soon as I turned up towards her place, I knew something was up. I rush inside, I'm going room to room, and... I find her. She's gone. She's peaceful, but... Yeah. So, I'm about to go home and call the doctor and all that, and... There's this knock at the door. I freeze. Another knock. And another.
7: Why didn't you answer? Uh, I don't know.
8: I'm hoping they'll just give up and go.
7: But if you just explain...
8: It's already too late. The moment's already gone. I feel it go.
7: Uh, What am I going to say?
8: Hi. Oh, sorry, I didn't answer the door. I I was too busy hiding.
7: We've all felt those moments slip away. When something gets left unsaid and it's too late ever to say it. Sometimes saying nothing is only delaying saying everything. The knocking stopped and the voice is back, louder than before. They're in the house, right?
8: Yeah, so now I'm looking for somewhere to hide, but I'm too big for the wardrobe or under the bed. And all the while, I can hear them looking through the house. I know I'm about to be found with this body, and I won't be able to explain why I didn't just answer the door. Before I can do anything,
7: the door starts to open. When we panic, we make terrible decisions. Some of the worst meals I've eaten were chosen mid-panic. But, Wilf's next decision was arguably much worse than his initial one to keep quiet. Before I know it, I've
8: already done it. The words are out. Don't come in.
7: You said it like that? Oh, I know, but
8: it works. The door stops, but now someone's calling through the door.
7: What's she saying? Grandma, is everything okay? What do you say?
8: That I'm ill and not to come in. I realized she could walk in any second, so now I'm looking through the drawers for a scarf or a hat or anything. All I can find is a nightie. So, I put it on.
7: Doesn't it feel like a bad idea?
8: It's the only way I can see of getting out of this mess. I feel like it might fool her. I'm about to get into bed when there's this scream, the doors open and this girl, she's screaming and if I walked in on someone next to my dead grandma and they're wearing her nightie, I'm not going to sit down and wait for them to explain, you know? I just bolt straight past her, out of the house and into the forest.
7: Wilf was spotted leaving the house by a group of local hunters who quickly gave chase. I
8: end up in a ditch. I'm hiding and I think to myself, hey, aren't we all hiding in some way? Don't we all have a side to ourselves that we keep from others? Keep concealed? Aren't we always pretending to be someone we're not? But what do we have to be ashamed of? Any of us. What do I have to be ashamed of, really? and I looked down. You know, the Nighty's not even my color.
3: <laughs>
7: Wilf was found by the hunters, ninety and all. Ultimately, no charges were brought. The police found the death was of natural causes. He did have to move out of the area, though, to a new neighborhood. He's much happier. It's much more friendly, relaxed. So relaxed, in fact, that his new neighbors are three brothers who built their own houses out of natural materials like sticks and straw. A new start. Some could say a fairy tale ending.
0: So Martin we we we're, we're drawing towards our conclusion the final act. What have we learned through the show then Martin? I think what we learn sits
1: somewhere in between Jada Bumrad's splatter of shit and the story that he tells to make sense of the splatter of shit. What seems to work really well in podcast narrative, at least in Jad's hands, is just sitting in that tension between the story and the randomness.
0: Jad seems to really want to invest into the illusion that storytelling gives you, that it gives you some other way of organising
1: our life. So we're left with this sort of suspended tension between story and shit. But there is... As you prompted with your question, Lance, a conclusion, a resolution. This happens at the end of the space episode, and it kind of pushes it beyond being just an audio text, just something we're listening to, to make connections and relationships with its audience and a kind of much larger, bigger, more important human project. Man completed his first exploration of the moon, December nineteen seventy-two A.D. And as we leave.
5: The moon in Taurus literal. We leave as we came, and God willingness we shall return. With peace and in hope. For all mankind. Godspeed the crew of Apollo
0: seventeen.
5: The last transmission from the moon. Produced by Barrett Golding for HearingVoices.com. Thanks to him. If you want to hear that again or anything else on the program again, visit our website, Radiolab.org. We are now podcasting. Oh, and also So, on so our hang website- on, this,
0: this is a little moment of, of history because this was the first time that Radiolab announced that they were a podcast.
1: Yes, this is, the, this is the first episode in which Radiolab says, and we are now podcasting. We are a podcast. And it comes at the end of this history of technology that includes space travel. It's really, really wonderful.
0: That tied together really beautifully and neatly. So
1: anyway, look, one
0: thing uh, about the Ira Glass Oh, thing. God.
1: I mean, what, what happened with the phone call? You, you want to ruin a lovely moment, that lovely space
0: moment with something as trivial as this? Yeah, go on. Tell me what happened at the end of the phone call. You, hang on. Did you turn him down? What do you think happened? Did you turn him down because you (laughs) thought it wasn't going to be that big a deal?
1: Oh, Lance, I've been waiting by my phone for nearly
0: 20 years, hoping that he will call me back. Oh, God. And you're still here, and that's why you're here now. (laughs) And I'm still here with you. Did I ever tell you about the time I turned down a a weekend away with the prodigy? Huh. No, you don't huh that. That's my prodigy story. Don't huh it. Oh, okay, so next week's episode, we're going to look at her in podcasting, <laughs> and how to drop it properly. Anyway, this has been for your ears only. My name's Lance Dan, and I'm Martin Spinelli. If you want to follow us, you can find us at Ears Only Podcast, and you can also buy a book. You can called Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution out from Bloomsbury, and you can buy that, and you'll find all these e- ideas set out beautifully annotated with references. Martin, the next episode is about audience. I'm listening. You're listening, but are you engaged? And that's the point of it, is how people get really involved with podcasts, where you get sucked in. I'm sucked in. For Your Ears Only was produced by Ella Gray-Thomas and Jack F. Dewars. This episode was written and presented by Martin Spinelli and Lance Dan and Martin was also our executive producer. Andrew Duff created our sound with additional music by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Ian McKenna and Rachel Sparks were our actors. We had support from Arts Council England, Broomsbury Publishing, and the School of Media, Film and Music at the University of Sussex, and the School of Media at the University of Brighton. Our distribution was made possible by Reframe of the University of Sussex and Resonance FM. And we had support for our initial interviews from a British Academy Leverhulme Research Grant. For more information, please visit earsonlypodcast.com.